0: Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve.
1: Um, okay, so I have a quick announcement. Monday night, 730 on uh, Hillsborough Road has a tradition of people doing a public first step. Um, the, one of the people who started that meeting took that from her former uh, meetings in another state, and also it's very common in an addict program for people to get their first step publicly. So Monday night, we'll have a first step. and It's a week from this Monday. So it's the fifth Monday. It's April 30th, and it's an open meeting. Anyone's welcome to come. if You have that space and a desire to come. Um, So a fellow Monday night goer, traveler, is my friend, Tina G., and I've known I've known Tina G a long time uh, when she first came into the program. And so, three things that I know from Tina G: one is she keeps coming back. Um, another thing about Tina G is that she works a, a hard and good program. Um, I know Tina G's willing to share from her own life, she uses I and me statements, she talks about herself, and she shares her experience, strength, and hope on a regular basis. Um, The other thing about Tina G is that she, she carries the message. She cares about newcomers, and typically she's the first person to welcome a newcomer at our meeting and office herself, gives her phone number and really encourages people to come into our meeting. So I'm very privileged to introduce and welcome my friend Tina G.
2: Thank you, Virginia. Hi, I'm Tina G, a great Member of on Thank you for the opportunity to share with you today. And I want to assure any of you that might be wondering um, if I qualify to be an ethanol. I, I do qualify. In the Green Book, there is a uh, checklist of questions, and I answer yes to all 19. All 19. I can't believe that, but true. So I am here for a reason, and it's because I am an ethanol. My sponsor always tells me to lead with my weakness, and when leading at my Monday night group, I usually say that I don't have any weaknesses. Um, I don't know why, but that gets a laugh no matter how many times I say it, and I figure there must be something that I don't know that they do. Um, When Vicki Mook called and asked if I was willing to do this, I told her I would be honored, but that public speaking is one of my greatest fears. So today, I am leading with my weakness. If I freeze up, I brought a big book um, to read out loud, to fill in extra time. Um, I will read the chapter to the wives, which I don't particularly like, and I was, I'm hoping that will motivate me to keep pushing through. Um, I'm going to try to think of this as a conversation on the phone or that I'm leading a meeting um, and sitting in a circle. And if those two things don't work, um, I'm going to imagine you all in your underwear, which by the way, is not conference approved. (laughs) Assuming I do make it through, I'm going to talk a little bit about um, where I've come from, where I've been, and where I am now, and I have prayed that I will be sober-minded in my sharing. So I grew up in northeast Indiana in a middle-income home. My dad was a mechanical engineer and my mom a homemaker. I'm the youngest of three girls. My oldest sister was the scapegoat, and she was frequently punished. Um, I have a vivid memory of dad chasing my oldest sister down the hallway and kicking her as she ran. My oldest sister's physical appearance didn't meet my dad's standard, and so uh, he and the rest of the family called her fat butt. My middle sister was the achiever. She had good grades, and she lived in her own little world of denial, and she still does. My role in the family was that of comedian and peacemaker. So if any of you have been around me much, I'm known for um, cracking a joke occasionally, and that's because I've had years of experience. In fact, if I'm going to get myself in trouble, it's usually with my tongue, so I apologize in advance. We were a very religious family with black-and-white thinking, and we had secrets. One of those secrets being that my dad, a prominent member of our faith tradition, was a rageaholic. Dad would come home from work most days with his face red, teeth clenched, eyes bulging, hands clenched tight, stomping, yelling and cussing. There were never words of comfort or compliment, only ignoring or criticism. I thought, maybe I, I'm not remembering this correctly, or maybe I was just too sensitive. Uh, Then I recalled the time Dad got a growth on his throat and um, he had to have surgery. The doctor asked Dad if he was a professional singer or a public speaker. Um, Usually patients that got growths on their um, throats had that profession. Um, That tells you how much my dad yelled. The other secret in the family was that I was molested by my cousin who was nine years older. When my parents found out, they kept him away from me, but we never talked about it until many years later. They had hoped that I would forget. I never forgot. I spent my childhood not understanding what had happened to me. I was taught, I was not taught to think about my own needs and to take positive actions to meet them. The pattern I saw growing up was that of not dealing with serious issues. We had a neighbor that was known to be a peeping Tom and a pedophile, but my parents never reported him. They also never got help for their unhappy, dysfunctional marriage. I acquired some unhealthy beliefs about myself very early in my life, that I was not worthwhile and lovable. I have no memories of my dad picking me up and giving me a hug or telling me he loved me. That I was able to control other people's behavior. I tried to control my dad's behavior by being a good little girl or just being invisible. And that I was alone. I didn't feel protected from my dad or predators. I was groomed to not have a self and to make someone else the center of the universe. I was groomed to marry an addict. In 1991, that's just what I did. I chose a partner who could not or would not love and support me in a healthy way. Around a year into our marriage, my husband disclosed to me that he had been unfaithful. He was very remorseful and had begun being a therapist. We went to a few couple sessions together, and then I was fine. F-I-N-E. Freaked out, insecure, neurotic, and emotional. He was the one with the problem, not me. It was at that point that I began to live life from the standpoint of a victim and perceived any personal criticism as a threat. Anger, fear, and depression were nearly constant. I began to kill parts of myself off so that I could survive. I had fewer needs and began to isolate. I lived in fear that my essay would be unfaithful again. My self-esteem dropped to low level, and I doubted my attractiveness, my emotions, and my sanity. I felt betrayed by my husband, whom I loved the most. I remember nights of not being able to sleep and going into the bathroom to cry. I cried so hard at times that I thought my insides were going to come out. The grief and pain were so big, but I was too ashamed to ask for help. After several disclosures, job changes, moves, and three children, I felt emotionally numb. I was focusing on my husband to the point of obsession and had tried every known method to control it. I misused television and food and kept so busy that I didn't have time to feel my emotions. I neglected my health, my job, and my children. No matter how I tried to struggle against it, deny it or minimize its effects, the failure of my efforts to cope with sexaholism brought me to the point of despair. My life had become unmanageable. Does this sound familiar? Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Yes, my life was the problem. In January 2006, almost 15 years Um, of marriage, I walked into the doors of ethanol. That night, I was, as someone described to me many years later, like a timid little mouse on a shelf hiding behind something. Nothing of Tina was left. I had killed every part off that didn't allow me to stay in my dysfunctional, horrifically painful marriage. I remember hearing that if I kept coming back, I would learn who I was and know God better. That kept me coming back. I began to see my problems in a new light, and the awareness dawned that I did have choices concerning my own actions. This was the beginning of my recovery. I began, as the white book says, to take the actions of love to improve my relations with others. Please note here that love is an action. The first action I took was to go to meetings. This was a big deal for me. I never loved my kids. My 12-year-old daughter used to cry when I would leave to go to my meetings on Monday nights. That's how unusual it was for me to do something as simple as leave the house without my kids. Within the first month of my recovery, there was a tragic incident in that my 8-year-old daughter saw porn on my husband's computer. We own our own business, and I had brought her with me while I took care of some things. I was logging her into the computer to play games, and a porn site popped up. Every time I tried to get out of sight, a new image would appear. While I was frantically trying to get it to go away, I yelled at my daughter to turn around so she wouldn't keep being violated. So what were my actions of love? The first thing I did was I made a call. I don't imagine that she remembers this, but I called a stranger named Nancy A., I was crying and telling her what had just happened. I remember saying through my sobs,
1: I just don't trust him.
2: And Nancy A. said, Good for you. (laughs) I think maybe I stopped short and looked at the phone. It's a good thing I don't trust him? Really? Let me tell you, I took that idea and I ran with it. I began immediately after that phone call to love my husband and children well. And I set a boundary. I told him that the kids and I would no longer set foot into the office until he made it a safe place. That day, he got somebody to put lockers on the computer. Another action of love was for my sweet little eight-year-old daughter, Over the years, following that incident, I talked to my daughter about what happened. I reminded her that she did nothing wrong. And as she got older and I brought it up, she would roll her eyes and say, I know, Mom, I didn't do anything wrong. And now she's 20, and it it occasionally comes up. And now she says, I know I didn't do anything wrong. For me, taking the actions of love wasn't sitting back and ignoring because it's difficult or uncomfortable. It's having the courage to change the things I can. Very early in my recovery, I memorized the extended version of the serenity prayer, and I would like to read it to you right now. Um, And I wrote it down because I don't trust myself to remember in this moment. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference, living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardships as the pathway to peace, taking as he did this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that he will make all things right if I surrender to his will, that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with him forever in the next. Amen. I love this prayer. Throughout my journey, the serenity prayer has come to mind and comforted me while in difficult situations. One of those times was in April 2006. I was sitting at the kitchen table balancing the checkbook and I saw two purchases that my husband had made. One was for my birthday present and the other a gift for his emotional affair partner. My heart started racing, my face got hot, my ears were ringing and at that moment, my 10-year-old son came up to me. He was smiling and holding something for me to see, and he was so pleased. His lips were moving, but I could not hear a thing he was saying. The thought came in my mind, enjoy the moment. I was able to calm myself down and be present for my sweet little boy. That was such a gift to me and my son. Having that one small victory felt so good. I began to see that I was making progress. I also realized that I could have more than one emotion at a time, and it gave me hope. Before recovery, sex addiction defined me, but this program was setting me free. I was making calls, reading literature, and I continued going to meetings. I was learning so many wonderful things, that I have choices, that I have a voice, that I'm allowed to have needs, and that I'm not alone. Another thing I learned was how to listen. Over time, I stopped thinking about what I was going to say while the other person was sharing. I really began to hear. This has helped me in all my relationships with my husband, friends, people at work, and my children. My husband and I taught our children this concept by having one object to hold during family meetings. The person speaking had to be holding the object and everyone else had to be silent. This gave everyone a voice and a chance to be heard. This was a much-needed skill that I had lacked. One time before recovery, I was rushing the kids out the door to drive them to elementary school. We were running late, and we hopped in the van, which had a luggage rack on the top, very important part of storage. And I was zooming down the road. It's a half mile to the school, and the road has two sharp curves, one right after the other. And the kids were trying to tell me something that, as usual, I was not present. We turned one sharp curve and I heard thump. Meow. We turned another really sharp curve and I heard thump.
1: Meow.
2: And the light bulb went on. I said, I think the cat's on the roof. And the kid said, That's what we've been trying to tell you. So, what I'm telling you, and I hope you're listening, is that if you work a program, your cat will lick it.
0: That's
2: not confidence to either. I got a sponsor within the next few months, and she began helping me work my first step. I decided that I needed a different sponsor, so I changed. This was not easy for me. I was worried about hurting her feelings. But in this program, I can have needs and take actions to meet them. The sponsor I have now has walked with me for about 11 years. She was intimidating to me at first and a bit scary, but I liked what I heard during her shares and I wanted what she had. So I asked her if she would be willing to sponsor me. Over the years, my sponsor has listened to hours upon hours upon hours of me talking about me and my life. She's taken numerous phone calls of me crying because my husband had disclosed or I had gotten triggered. There was one time I remember calling my sponsor, and I was so upset. My husband did this, and he said that. And she listened for a while, and then she said, Tina, it's you. What? No, no, you don't understand. He said this, and he did that. Tina, it's you. She was right. I was not sober. What a privilege to have someone know me and my story so completely. This dear, sweet lady that I used to be afraid of is now my friend. I love her with all my heart. She has loved me well through many a crisis and celebration. But mostly, she has taught me about rigorous honesty. The big book talks about how to book the program. H is for honesty, O is for open-mindedness, and W is for willingness. These are the essentials of recovery. The Green Book says that as I connect at a deeper level with my higher powers love for me, I will feel a greater ability to be honest, to know myself, and to be seen and heard by others. Until I could be honest with myself and be open-minded and willing to hear what my sponsor and others had to say to me, I could not get better. My sponsor has told me that she hasn't had another sponsee that was in such a thick fog of denial don't even know I'm lying. That's what denial stands for. I couldn't be honest with myself, let alone another human being. I was a liar. Oh, I did myself about who I was, what I felt, and what I thought. I was a complete fraud. I had spent my childhood and marriage trying to escape reality, and it took the love and patience of my sponsor, who was safe, to call me to the light. It took me close to two years to begin to feel. My sponsor had me call and tell her what I was powerless over. I wasn't really feeling it. She had me get a sketch pad and make two sections. I was to draw pictures of things I liked and things I didn't like. Eh, not so much. Um, I could tell you what my essay liked and what he didn't like, and I could tell you what he was powerless over. But I was kind of vanilla. As I began to work step one, feelings of grief that I had never been given permission or had taken the time to feel started coming up. I was coming alive. For 41 years, without even knowing it, I had lived in fear that the secrets would be revealed and that the mask would be torn off. Is it any wonder that I was in such a dense fog? In my own way and my own time, I completed the steps. My honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness grew with each completed step. Step two, I realized that being my own God got me where I was, and I began to believe that my higher power could restore me to sanity. Step three, my fear was beginning to fade. God had shown me that he could be trusted, and I started trusting him with little things until finally I could turn my will and my life over to him. Step four, since I had God holding me safely, I could make a searching and full, full, moral inventory of myself. Step five, since I had a loving God and a sponsor that I trusted, I could admit my wrongs. Step six, I had waited a long time. I was ready to have God remove my defective character. Step seven, by this point, I really believed he could and would, so I humbly asked him to remove my shortcomings. Step eight, since I was feeling such relief by this time, I was making my list and checking its life, and I was ready to make amends. Step nine, With God on my side and having been given given myself permission to be human, I made amends. And the last three steps, 10, 11, and 12, are traditionally known to be what keeps people sober. Step 10, I am not perfect. I continue to make mistakes. But it's important that I keep my side of the street clean, so I try to promptly admit when I'm wrong. Step 11, only God knows what's best for me, and I'm trusting that he will make all things right if I surrender to his will. So I'm praying for the knowledge to will and that he will give me the power to do it. Step 12. Having had a spiritual awakening as a result of working these steps, I try to share this wonderful gift that I've been given to others and to practice these principles in every aspect of my life. The steps have transformed me. I have been humbled, and now I'm human like the rest of y'all. I'm not not so self-righteous and judgmental. I can love others more because I know my own surgery be I'm no longer that pen and little rodent hiding on a shelf. I began sponsoring after I did my fourth step. I don't know if I'm any good at it, but I try, I care, and I listen. I share my experience, strength, and hope. I'm rigorously honest. I had one sponsor ask me to speak words of kindness to her, so that tells me I've got work to do still. I've gotten angry and yelled because of a sloppy, rec- reckless behavior that endangered her life. I called and made an amend for yelling. I'm reminded daily of where I was and that I don't want to go back to that place. I am striving for progress, not perfection. I'm thankful for the opportunity to walk beside others in the program that aren't as far, as lo- as far along and to give back what has so generously been given to me. I try to remember that the newcomer is the most important person in the room, making sure they have the phone list and the newcomer's pamphlet, telling them that they aren't alone and that there is help and hope, giving them a hug, telling them that I'm glad they're there, calling them to share my experience, strength, and hope or to let them share the pain that they've kept bottled up sometimes for decades. What an honor to be a part of that. One thing I was confused about in the beginning was how to know the difference between detaching with love and withdrawing. For me, remembering that I am powerless over other people's places and things helps me to detach with love. Sometimes I need to allow others to face the consequences of their behavior. I need to keep my spoon in my own bowl. For me, detachment means caring enough about myself to be responsible for my own welfare. The way that I do that is by believing that God is in control and that if I surrender to his will, he will make all things right. I have found that when I detach with love, I'm able to live a life of acceptance. At times I feel joy and at others' pain, but I have learned that I can't have one without the other. For me, it all depends on my heart. If I am reacting out of anxiety, fear of being hurt, or anger, then I'm withdrawing. If I'm responding while feeling peace and serenity, then I'm detaching with love and trusting in my higher power. Recovery has taught me how to love others and God. Before, I thought I was loving others, but mostly my life was spent trying to control everything and everyone around me so that I would feel safe and so I would look good to myself and to others. Not only have I experienced the problems, but today I experience the gifts of the S-M-M-Program. And I would like to read them to you. When we approach the process of recovery with honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness to apply the principles of the self steps to our lives, we will soon begin to see the rewards. We will become able to surrender our self-defeating behavior. We will find that we have the strength and insight to make good choices for ourselves. Our ability to act positively on behalf of our health, family, jobs, and banking accounts will amaze us. We will find that others are doing things for themselves which we thought we had to do for them. Our ability to give and receive love will expand tremendously. We will become increasingly available for loving relationships with others. We will recover the feeling of joy. We will become more honest with ourselves and experience a new comfort in our intimate relationships. We will feel the security that arises from true fellowship with others in the program knowing that we are loved and accepted just as we are. Feelings of failure and inadequacy will be replaced by self-confidence and independence of spirit. We will no longer expect other people to provide us with an identity or a sense of self-worth. We will find the courage to be true to ourselves. We will know peace of mind and feel a stronger connection with the higher power of our understanding, and our hope will turn to faith that God is really working in our lives as we explore the wonders of serenity, dignity, and emotional growth. I have experienced all these gifts, but the one that surprises me the most even now is that I have found the courage to be true to myself. A very simple example of this that I can give you is after starting recovery, I began to enjoy being creative. Years ago, before recovery, I remember pulling out the construction paper and Crayola watercolors for the kids to make, make something. I decided to join them, and I drew and painted a picture of a deer drinking from a river. I actually thought it was pretty good. But when my husband saw it, he said it looked like a kangaroo. Honestly, if a monkey had criticized my work, I would have given up. But today, I don't care what anybody thinks. I paint, make baby shoes, stuff animals... Whatever makes me happy. I made it through. It says, you made it through. I'm on the last (laughs) page. My higher power has been so faithful, and I know that he has my back. For me, working in this program has been a lifesaver. I want you to know that I believe that your higher power has your back too. He can bring you back to life if you let this addiction define you. So I'm inviting you to join me on this journey. Thank you. Thanks, Tina G. And uh, like Virginia said, <clears throat> Tina really does think of the newcomer as the most important person in the room. When I first went to my very first meeting, it was the Monday night meeting. <clears throat> I went there for about four or five months. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh I'd gone with a friend that was I was really close to. But uh it was this girl, Tina G, walked up to me afterwards. She could have let me hang with my a friend or other be be all by myself, but no, she came up and she loved on me, she spoke to me, and for almost nine years now I talked to her at least once a week. Thank
1: you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you <can> all... <laughs> um